0: My name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome back two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and screenwriter Lynn Nottage for part two of our really special conversation about family, art, travel, and what matters to us most. Lynn's history-shaping career includes the play's Sweat, By the Way, Meet Vera Stark, Ruined and Intimate Apparel. For those of you in the New York City area, you can visit Second Stage Theater right now to see her most recent production, Clyde's, which is receiving rave reviews. The co-founder of the production company Market Road Films, she's also developed original projects for HBO, Sydney Kimmel Entertainment, Showtime, This Is That, and Harpo. A graduate of Brown University and the Yale School of Drama, she's currently an associate professor in the theater department at Columbia School of the Arts. In this conversation, we go deeper into, as she puts it, the fabric of her storytelling, her DNA as a writer, her truly remarkable experience with the legendary Langston Hughes, as well as her thoughts on this contemporary moment in Black theater. Let's
1: listen in. Those pictures in the background, is that your your work? Yeah. That's so fantastic. I love those. Well, thank you so much.
0: It really means a lot.
1: Those are really beautiful.
0: All of these are um, collages I made with both source material, but then also photos from my travels. Wow. Um, so one of the things that I love about it is when I look at it, I see, you know, for instance, in this one, Senegal and Cuba mashed up, you know, or um, Portugal and Brooklyn.
1: Wow, <laughs> that's so sort of like cultural fusion.
0: Yeah, and just really thinking about ideas of citizenship and belonging and identity.
1: When were you in Sen- Senegal?
0: When was I in Senegal? That was, oh, I want to say 2016 um, for that trip. That was actually one of my favorite places. It was one of those places where I really felt a strong sense of identification
1: immediately. It's so funny, I had the exact same experience when I went to Senegal, I just thought. Yeah. When I landed, I'm like, wow, I'm home. I recognize the people. It's like everyone looked really familiar to me. And Mm -hmm. I just loved just the incredible amount of warmth and generosity that was directed at me. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it just, I I had, it was the first place that I went to in Africa. And I just had this very magical, wonderful, embracing experience.
0: What year was that for you?
1: Um, I want to say it was probably... Nineteen ninety-eight, when I went,
0: Senegal is an interesting place to be. Your first trip, yeah, Um, I I find a lot of African Americans tend to go to like Ghana, for instance, or some place where it's anglophone.
1: Yeah, I I did. I did go to Ghana many, many years later, but I didn't have the kind of revelatory experience that I had in Senegal. There was, uh, there was. I felt like there was some sort of spiritual connection that I really um, responded to the culture yeah and the food and um, all aspects of that experience that's and interesting had, yeah you know and I had the, like this I had like like a few really singular um, experiences because I traveled all over um, the, the, the country and one experience it was on a bus mm-hmm. and I don't know whether you traveled by buses but yeah. The buses, you know, the little buses get really, really crowded. And I was on this yeah. one bus where it was so crowded that I was literally suspended that my butt wasn't even touching. I'm
0: picturing those little buses, <laughs> somebody's luggage here, somebody's head there, somebody's chicken here. Like,
1: <laughs> I know those buses. <laughs> and there was a little boy who was like two seats over who got sick in the bus and he Mm. began to vomit. I'm like, this is just, all of my American sensibilities are just not relating to this. But then the most beautiful thing happened is that everyone in the bus took care of this little boy. And because he was sitting like in the middle, like, like me, he wasn't near a window and he vomited. And then this is, then um, everyone, passed the vomit from hand to hand and threw it out the window. And it got to me, and I was like, you know, <laughs> and Sisters, I'm with you, but I still am not there yet. <laughs> I'm just like, pass the vomit over me. <laughs> but it's like, nope, it's not gonna happen. But I thought, what a beautiful gesture of community. It's that everyone was taking care of this little boy, and I thought, this is my favorite place ever. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, another experience I had, which was also just um, about collective energy, mm-hmm. is um, we had to cross the river. And maybe this was not Sangal, maybe it was Gambia, but mm-hmm. we're at the very top of the river. And there was a ferry, but it was a hand-pull ferry. In order to cross, there had to be a critical mass. And we had to wait probably six to eight hours under a big tree with everyone. And then at some point, The guy who had the ferry boat, he's like, okay, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Pull that rope as hard as we could to get everyone across the river. And I thought, this is kind of the way the world should be.
0: Yeah, like that's actually really beautiful.
1: It was really beautiful. That's why I think Senegal was so special is that I learned some deep life lessons there that I carry with me forever. Why were you there? Was it... Um, I I can tell you very specifically why I was there is like when my mother died and because it it was so difficult um, taking care of her and um, I had I had a baby at the same moment she died but when my just before my mother died she said I want you to take a trip for yourself and by yourself even though I had like a one-year-old she's like you need to just get away she could see how exhausted I was and I said to my husband at the time it's like I want to honor my mother's wish and take a trip, and yeah. so that trip was to go to Senegal for a month.
0: That's such a. I mean, you talk about the community care taking that happened when you were there, but I feel like that was almost ordained by. Yeah. You know, your yeah, mother that, I, taking care of you
1: and even making the suggestion that you go. Did I go there? I mean, I felt like there was a reason why I picked that country and the reason why I had the experiences that I had you know just watching you talk about caretaking and caregiving and mm-hmm. watching how a community did all of those things for each other
0: yeah wow
1: I I mean travel is one of the the
0: biggest joys of my life um probably the hardest thing to give up over this past yeah. you know quarantine time although I really love home too like I really do love being in my space yeah and um so I guess, you know, the both andness of it all, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is, I, I love that you love to travel because I feel like I'm this Black woman who loved to travel, and for years, it was really hard for me to find other folks who wanted to go to the places that I want to go.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Um, and it's important to be able to pick well your travel companions.
1: Yes, very important.
0: Because everybody oh came.
1: Lord, oh, no, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's true, yeah. and I've learned that the hard way. Me too. <laughs> Yeah, it's like being in the middle of situations where someone just literally, literally doesn't know how to negotiate it and, and sort of defaults to their worst self.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's, it, travel teaches you so much about who you are, who you want to be, who you don't want to be, you know, um, who we can be.
1: Yeah, who we can. And I, do, I just think that we all would be in a better place if we traveled more.
0: I, I, feel I feel like 100%.
1: that's one of one of the things within our struggle, within our community, that we struggle with is just that we don't have the opportunity to explore. Yeah. Well,
0: one of my my uncles, who was probably the biggest professional influence on me, his name was John O'Neill, and he left Southern Illinois, SIU, where he went to school, and then moved down south to join SNCC, uh, where oh, he was wow. a field director. And their work, um, once he was in SNCC, was to develop the cultural arm of the organization. So they put together what's known as the now as the Free Southern Theater, and they would travel around rural communities, bringing plays that that spoke to the themes of the movement. Oh wow! and, And then have these conversations afterwards with the folks who were attending. So it was it was it was an art artistic intervention, but also an organizing tool for people who might not want to come to a rally or pick up a brochure or whatever. Right. And when I was reading about your tour of the Rust Belt and uh, yeah. having these conversations with people following your play, I thought to myself, now that, you know, that's how you use travel and art and it's in the same model of, of what Uncle John was doing with FST. Yeah.
1: yeah and, and also the WP, WPA project, I mean, I think there's a long tra- tra- um, tradition mm-hmm. of art being used to reach um, Marginalized communities are communities that that are difficult to get to that don't necessarily have the resources to to go to the theater. And I think that's one of the things that we wanted to do with the the Sweat mobile tour is really reach folks who we felt would be very much in dialogue with the themes of the play um, and who would relate to the storytelling, but um, in cities that didn't necessarily have regional theaters and to people who wouldn't, you know, spend $25 to go and sit for two hours in a the theater. I remember the very first um, stop on our mobile tour was in Erie, um, in Erie. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was a halfway house for folks who were form- formerly incarcerated, just helping them transition back into their communities. And we did this piece and all of these women showed up with their babies. <laughs> And we couldn't say to them, oh, you can't come, because that's sort of the social contract. When you go into communities, you have to meet the communities where they are. And right. so I remember me and, and Stephanie Arbert, like taking these babies in our arms so that the moms could see the shows. And we became like these impromptu babysitters. And I thought, that's I so that. beautiful. And it was really wonderful. That. And we had a great time with these little kids. And the moms got to have an evening out and mm-hmm. have an experience that they probably don't normally get. And and so it was it was actually I didn't I didn't travel through the entire tour but I you know I po- popped in it's like I popped in to the tour at Flint Michigan I popped in when we were at a, a Native American reservation in w- Wisconsin and the play landed and hit each community differently but each community at the very end had a response that was overwhelmingly emotional
0: yeah we we were talking about the gift of travel but I also think for everybody who doesn't have access to to passport stamps you know I think art okay. Art is really a way to time travel as well,
1: you know. Um, and, and I also feel like art is for everyone. I think that one of the things that we are continually forget, forgetting, because of these institutions that are being built that house what we do, is that art was really designed to tell our collective story. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one of my th- things, at least with theater, is that the prosceniums and these spaces are really str- shrinking. The reach of our storytelling, and mm-hmm. and are restructuring the ways in which we tell stories because we have to shape them to the stages that are provided, quote unquote, to to us. And I think that it's probably true of visual arts as well that a lot of young people are not thinking about how the art will hang in the walls of everyone, but thinking about you know how they will hang in gallery walls, you know, and how much they will fetch, rather than thinking how can I make my art as accessible to everyone as possible. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, once you start getting into market
1: considerations, it's a yeah. whole different kind of conversation. It's a whole yeah, but 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 I, I just don't like the the current trend trend right right now. It's like I'm so thankful that there is this tremendous recognition of black genius, and <laughs> but the art is being priced out so that black people can't afford it. Yeah you know it's like it's great to see it hanging in museums but we're not going to be able to hang them in, in our homes and one of the beauties of my upbringing is that I was able to be surrounded by the work of master artists and it was affordable and it was accessible and many of them
0: were in your literal community and in, they were like part of the community we were one we yeah. were one yeah.
1: community you know there was no us and them it was just us we <laughs> yeah yeah what are your thoughts about you know this this upcoming moment in
0: Broadway where you know there's this this blackity blackness?
1: <laughs> oh, it's like I love this blackity blackness, and you know we talk amongst each other about like how exciting it is and what can we do to support each other and to ensure that this isn't just a blip that it's a moment that can transcend you know the reopening of Broadway and that next year it's also blackity black and then the following year it's blackity blackity black black, <laughs> you know that <laughs> <But it> just <laughs> and, think- and and yeah and and what more importantly is like one of the things we talk a lot about is that we don't want to cannibalize each other mm. that we want to ensure that what people see from the outside is our unified front, is that we're supporting each other, therefore the audiences should, should support all of us. So that if you buy a ticket to Antoinette's play, you know, think, of, you know, consider buying a ticket to my play or Keenan's play or to Charles, Charles Randolph Wright's pr- production, of mm-hmm. Alice Childress's play. Not just like, that's the one I wanna see, but think about supporting the entire season.
0: Yeah, that actually speaks to what I was about to ask, which is, you know, what are those strategies for 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 working towards longevity and making sure this isn't a closing window of,
1: of interest? Of interest. Well, that's I mean we're thinking about that. I mean I I personally reached out to some of the writers and directors and say, well, what can we do? What can we do to ensure that you know we carving out this beautiful space in Broadway that is uh, you know is evergreen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. You no, know, that's not just about this moment. And one of the things we're talking about is is how can we build a coalition that supports each other? And oh, so beautiful. that we're, you know, when I talk about my play, I can also talk about someone else's play and vice versa. Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder if you would talk a little bit about the model that you're you are working to implement with the watering hole, you know, where you're opening up these immersive installations to other creatives of color.
1: Um, uh, sure, I mean, uh, because we've all lived through what the seemingly impossible moment, <laughs> that we'll be talking about for probably centuries Forever. it was just like you know you think about all that was packed into this last year you know between George Floyd and Trump and covid it's like we really ran the gauntlet shit. yeah huh? yeah we ran the gauntlet yeah um and but there's there was a, a lot of conversation you know um how do we in- implement more equity and diversity in theaters and i spent oodles of time on Zoom talking about this and taking workshops and, mm-hmm. you know, and ensuring that institutions were really going to implement some of these changes. But I thought it's not enough to talk about. It's like, how do we manifest? And in the watering hole, um, I had this opportunity that came to me, Paige Evans, who's the artistic director of the Signature Theatre, Um, asked me whether I want to do something during COVID and I said, I'm really not interested in doing anything during COVID. I don't want to, you know, create a Zoom piece or um, create an an audio piece. What I would really love to do is figure out how do we reopen the space so that audiences um, understand that it's not going to be business as usual, that it's really they enter in a space that feels very transformed, that feels like we are living the principles that we're espousing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what I said to her is like, I would, what I would love to do is to animate the entire theater, to disrupt the notion of where our stories are told and how they're told. And I wanted to specifically invite young BIPOC theater artists to dream inside of the space. And mm-hmm. one of the prompts was, what do you desire? And how do you want to be invited back? and um, we came about the the notion of the watering hole because the signature theater is one of the few spaces in new york city in which it has wi-fi and when you go into the space you see everyone it's culturally diverse it's economically diverse you know there's diversity amongst um, um, age we thought it felt just really a vital part of of the theater community the watering hole, the place where we go for sustenance and nurturing. We thought, how do we invite people back to that space? And um, so, what the what the installation is is really like the sideshow, in which there are ten distinct pieces, each that take part in a different part of the theater, and you just move through it. Yeah. And and one of the other ways we disrupted is that we asked a visual artist, um, in this case, Vanessa German. I love her work. I love her so much. She's just such a special person to create something. And, you know, it, it took her a moment because she's so used to creating in the gallery world and in that space to understand it's like theater has far fewer resources you know, than, than the, the art world. But she was game and she asked questions of us that we wouldn't normally ask of ourselves mm-hmm. in making the art. And it, it, it ended up being this really kind of lovely, difficult, challenging collaboration that resulted in this installation, which isn't perfect, but it is healing and beautiful.
0: I think what resonates the most for me out of what you just said, well, there's a lot that resonates, but the thing that's sitting with me right now is this idea of challenging what what it is that we return to, you know, and kind of actively using this moment um, that we've collectively had, like the gift of it is that all of us were kind of re-envisioning you know, getting in touch with who we are, what we've been doing, re-envisioning what our future might look like once a return to the world became possible, you know? And um, for many of us getting clear that returning to what was is no
1: longer tenable. It's right? no longer tenable, but but I also felt, felt like with The Warding Hole, we had to, as I said, manifest, we had to demonstrate yes. um, how, you know, what a different art practice looks like. Mm-hmm. And um, I, afterwards, we had this really beautiful moment When we're opening the piece, in which we all circled up, and I spoke, and the artistic director spoke, and the director, you know, sort of the usual suspects spoke, but then um, the line producer said, "Can I say something?" And this is a woman who doesn't usually get invited to speak at the openings, and she's a Latinx woman who gave this really emotional speech. She said, you know, I have worked at this theater for 10 years, and this is the first time that I felt seen and represented, and that I felt like I was part of making the art. I wasn't just in service to the art, and I felt Mm -hmm. like I am invested in every aspect of this. And then we went around. and. Um, you know the tech people spoke, and the ushers spoke, and I thought, thought, what's going on? And afterwards, the artistic director literally pulled me aside, and she said, "I don't know what just happened." Wow. She's like, she's like, that was kind of beautiful. That everyone felt empowered to speak, and she's like, that just isn't part of the hierarchy here, and it was disrupted. And I thought, if we did nothing else, we succeeded there is we disrupted the hierarchy in which everyone who participated felt that they were an equal participant and they felt seen and they felt heard. And that's all that we're asking really. <laughs> when you think of equity and diversity is that everyone wants to be seen, acknowledged, and, and, and heard.
0: In many ways, that almost
1: feels like, a, like an artist statement. Yeah, manifesto. You know the first thing when you walk in is a manifesto but it's a loose manifesto it's just a a list of desires and that's the first thing that you encounter when you walk in the space is what we all as artists desire of our practice, of our audience, of our spaces that we're invited into. I guess as you as you
0: Think about those desires in your own practice. You know, one of the things that you're most renowned for is that all of the plays are so dramatically different. Right. Um, but when you think about your connective tissue throughout the work, think about what it is that you're creating with your
1: practice in the world. How would you describe that? Um, I I, th- I think that's always really a, a complicated question because I do have this very nomadic imagination and sort of traveling from place to place. I mean, I think that one of the, the things that I'm really interested in is. Um, is cultural collisions and you know the nature of multiculturalism in um, in, our, in, in our culture and and, and um, those tensions and I like exploring them on the stage. I think the other thing that I'm really interested in is, 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 is seems very general, but it's true is sort of placing the stories of women from the African diaspora center stage and but in uh, in in a slightly, levered way is like i'm interested in characters who who are morally ambiguous who are making choices that um may to some seem compromised in order to survive you know i'm not interested in sort of the pat stories of heroes i'm interested in sort of um, ordinary, extraordinary ordinary people which is you know sort of circling back to ancestry that's who i spring from is People who, you know, basically were disappeared in the archive, but who lived these rich, robust, important lives that were just never seen.
0: <laughs> as we as we conclude, there's a, a name that I'd like to uh, throw out to you, and just ask you for your reflections on him and his impact in your
1: world, and that is uh, George Bass. I mean, George Bass is, you know, he's he's. he's He was immensely important in in my life. I studied with him when I was at Brown University. He was my playwriting teacher. Um, I, I think I took my first class with him when I was in my freshman year. And you talk about someone who just wrenches open your world and makes you see things differently, is that he really taught me about the joy of making theater, you know, and how theater was not just about placing stories on stage, but that it was about rituals and the way in which you not only remembered your ancestors, but you sort of called them onto the stage. And it's a practice that I still do. And before I do any show is that I call all of the ancestors onto the stage to be present with us and to help us tell our stories. And I think that that's something that George Bass gave to me. I still remember one senior year, I took a course for, with him, which I think was called Rites and Rituals. And, Um, We had to tell, you know, tell stories that were somehow connected to our past. And I told us my story and, you know, we formed a drum circle and he asked all of us to close our eyes. And we closed our eyes really tightly. And he said, open your hands. And we opened up our hands and he put something in them. And he said, hold it tight. Hold it tight. You're holding your ancestor. And then he said, open your eyes, open your hands. And I opened it up. And he said, you're holding a piece of Langston Hughes. And it was a bone fragment of Langston Hughes, because he was the executor of Langston Hughes's will and had his ashes. And and I still, to this day, I thought, I'm carrying a little bit of Langston Hughes with me. The literal ash? No, it was a bone fragment of Langston Hughes. And we're all like, oh, my God. But, you know, George Bass made literal the notion of holding on to your ancestors. (laughs) remember (laughs) everyone's (laughs) face it's like you're holding langston hughes wow but you know i just i loved his irreverence and his sense of humor and his sense of whimsy and fun and just like how he infused everything he did with like every ounce of his being i'm gonna be saying with that langston story for a minute (laughs) yeah i I, I still have the bone i still have so he literally gave it to you yeah i still have him what do, where is it? What do you do with it? Where it, uh, I have like a little, little Langston box. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have a little, little box with Langston. That's kind of incredible. It's kind of incredible.
0: Um, okay, I lied, one more, one last, last question. Um, Camille Billups and James Hatch. Yes. Uh, I, I would love for you to talk about your experience with their archive.
1: Uh, sure. And I, well, I, I, you the fragments know, I
0: that they left for us.
1: Yeah, the fragment. I mean, they they were two extraordinary people. I mean, early on they began collecting at a time when I don't think anyone else was doing it, and I had like th- the beautiful opportunity a number of years ago because they left it to Emory. Mm-hmm. Um, em- Emory. And of going down there and just sitting with the archive and going through all of the manuscripts, you know, seeing like James Baldwin's um, stage manager's copy of Amen Corner with all of the changes that were being made and lines that were being crossed out and just um, um, notes of where the actors were moving so you could get a real sense of what the production looked like in its original form. And just go through like looking at Richard a play written by Richard Wright and by Ed Bullens and August Wilson like all of these pages that were yellowed and had their 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 writing in it but um, and I think I, I talked about the, the most extraordinary thing when I went to Emory was encountering um, Phyllis Wheatley's collection of poems and what was really remarkable about about this particular manuscript that they had is that it actually had her handwriting in it and changes that she had made. And when I saw it, I literally burst into tears. I had like a spontaneous reaction because in that moment I realized that that was the first time that a black woman was writing herself into existence on the American um, continent. Like that was our first narrative being shaped. And I thought, here I am looking at it all these years later, and I just was overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think that's one of the things that's emerging most for me as I think about, you know, this conversation that we've just shared is is the way that we hold pieces of each other. Yeah.
1: Right.
0: Literally and figuratively.
1: But also, how important it is for us to make those connections. Yeah. I think that, you know, connecting with Langston Hughes, connecting with, with James Baldwin, connecting with Phyllis Wheatley. I mean, you talk about what is my DNA as a writer. I think that all of those little um, collisions that I have with their work become part of the fabric of my storytelling, consciously or unconsciously.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can follow us on Instagram at Lineage Podcast and visit LineagePodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch my new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced with the Park Avenue Armory. The lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images, and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to Shawneejamila.com and stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday.